si escuchas Crazy Out, es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente. Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the Deer Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to talk about the subject of detention centers as a subject that becomes ever-pressing in our communities. We'll speak with members of the Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity, Hilda Cruz, and Reverend Jeffrey Ryan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as the organization? My name is Hilda Cruz. I'm a faith organizer with Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity, uh, an organization that focuses on two issues, and one is the uh, imprisonment of peoples, and one of that is the immigrant um, population. I am Reverend Jeffrey Kealoha Ryan. I am the Senior Minister and Spiritual Director for Riverside Center for Spiritual Living, where we embolden people to live their highest potential through the transformative power of love. Well, I was hoping you could uh, share today your work around activism in, the, in the halting the building of more detention centers as well as the current detention centers. So how did that work begin? Well, that, the work began a while back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say since the detention facility was formed, det a detention, an immigrant detention facility is specifically a prison for immigrants. And so we see that um, these different types of uh, Im immigrants end up there. So they can be even green card holders, people who now hold DACA, you know, have been in there. We've had military men who, and women who end up there. We also see people who maybe try to cross the border and, and were caught by ICE, by immigrant enforcement officers, end up in detention facility, and also asylum seekers. So those are the types of people that will end up in an immigrant detention facility. The immigrant detention facility in Southern California is the one in the city of Adelanto. It is one of the largest facilities holding close to 2,000 people in there. What most people don't know is that these facilities are for profit. In the case of Adelanto, it is managed by the GEO company, Incorporated. Um, they're based in Florida, but they pretty much make money um, out of every person that's incarcerated in Adelanto. And in 2017, in their fiscal yearly report, they were making around $126 per person per day inside that facility. How does this get paid, people ask me. And what most people don't understand is that it's pretty much our U.S. federal dollars that finances the Department of Homeland Security and it is the Department of Homeland Security that contracts with, in this case, the GEO Corporation, and um, and they end up 
filling up each bed as much as they can with immigrants in our community. And so the other thing that we have seen in maybe the last decade is how laws are created to incriminate immigrants so that they will end up in detention. One of the things that most people do not understand or know is like, for example, in California, we made marijuana legal, right? And if you're a green card holder and they found, find you consuming or um, having marijuana, you're gonna end up in detention. If you're a US citizen, you will not, right? Because that is respected. It is still illegal under the federal law, but the, Cal the, the California um, law will protect you. But if you're um, a green card holder, if you're DACA, um, you will most likely end up being detained. Um, they will um, confiscate your green card, take away your DACA permit to work, and then after six months or several months in detention, most likely you will be deported. And so those are the cases that we are seeing. And also the injustice of seeing so many asylum seekers coming to a border asking for asylum. And if they have a, a story with credible fear, they still end up being detained for several months before they are allowed to go to their final destination. And so the work that I began doing here in, um, in, in Southern California was to let people know about these stories, right? Talk about detention and how the injustice of a for-profit system that is making money and causing a lot of um, pain for families who have either lived among our communities or um, those that are seeking our help. And so Jeffrey was invited to come and hear some of these stories, visit these facilities. My first visit went to the detention center in Adelanto was with Hilda and another or several other faith leaders from the Inland Valleys. And we were there to uh, bear witness to one of the asylum hearings for a young man from uh, Central America <clears throat> who had to flee his country for a threat of death. Um, other members of his family had already been killed and he was uh, trying to make sure that he didn't get killed. And so we had the opportunity to go and bear witness and it was um, very important it, to be the faith leaders and be members of faith community sitting there and watching the process and seeing it unfold because they really don't have anybody to represent them or to um, support them when they're experiencing the isolation, the uh, whole process itself. So we have the opportunity through uh, Hilda's organization to go and visit um, those folks who are being detained currently and then also to go and witness the um, the hearing. It was very oppressive, I guess is the best word that I could use for it. Even those visiting are made to feel criminalized or made to feel like criminals. Um, you, go, you go in and you have to give them your identification and then they give you a key and then you have to turn, all, put all of your belongings in a locker 
then return the key to them. You go through metal detectors. Once, once they call you back, you go through metal detectors. All of your pockets have to be turned inside out, making sure that there is nothing, that you're not carrying anything in. You cannot carry anything, not a piece of paper, nothing. Um, and then we were escorted to a narrow waiting room um, that we were then locked into and had no way for ourselves to get out of um, while we were waiting for the hearing to begin. And that took, uh, in this case, we sat in that small waiting room without food, water, or restroom facilities for over two hours, waiting for um, his case to be called. So it was very it was very oppressive and impressive in a way of like wow this is like mind boggling if anybody did need to use the restroom then we had to alert the security guards to then escort back through security because the only restrooms for visitors were on the other side of security and you have to go through the whole process all over again as i hear you recall your experience of being a visitor into these detention centers. And I want to be careful with my words because it sounds like, wow, what a hard moment it is to be a visitor. But I want to recall mm -hmm. my own experience as a, a student researcher uh, working in um, around the prison industrial complex. And that same experience of being a researcher and having to go through this process and how awkward it is for us to be in shock because we get a very mild version. Exactly. But I want to own that moment because it's like us peeking in mm -hmm. and, and, and still owning the reality of what we're witnessing and not saying we're trying to own it for ourselves, but like people are living through this in a different version that is hyper-escalated. Yes. In the level of your your words, I think, were uh, appropriate. The idea of oppressive situations, hostile situations, mm -hmm. dehumanizing situations, and to some degree, uh, hidden. Because as I, I'm hearing both of you speak, I have a mental gap of where Adelanto is. Mm -hmm. And I feel that I am one of those people that is always kind of keeping up with information. Um, and yet I have a, a mental gap because I have never driven there. So I know places, if uh, if I recall my early research experience around Folsom State Prison, mm -hmm. I know what that looks like because I've walked there. I know your description. I know of my version of it. And I know other, uh, like, county jails. Again, as a researcher, uh, as a loving supporter of someone that was detained, as sometimes that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but here I return. Uh, a lot of us carry these mental voids. Mm -hmm. And the uh, and the detention centers, I think we are aware of them. We see the conversation about children being detained, families. But I feel that most of us are walking around with these voids that, like, we've never gone there. We've never even, maybe we we, I know for some place in some places like in Santa Ana, people were driving by mm -hmm. this jail and didn't know that there were it was also serving as a detention center. So it was the lack of just knowing. You you drive by it every day if you're in that area, but you don't know what's going on in there. How do we talk about that? How do we talk about this idea that as we think about the subjects that are important for our communities, we are fighting these voids, or as you mentioned, these lack of information context. And here we are 
trying to make sense of our place in our communities of like how we're going to become active participants in the direction because as I understand your group is it's one that is not just the moral support and, and as you said bear witness but there's an advocacy of even halting like not in my backyard not in here that's what that's true that's true and so um, you're right there was a <clears throat> very intentional uh, way of constructing these places and I'm talking of most newer um, prison facilities outside of the communities because the intention is for people to not get involved yes to not find out to not get involved and to not be able to see it every day not to even yeah. be able to pass it every day you know because out of sight out of mind that's pretty much what it said and so um, actually, you made me think of an exhibit um, that's in Pitzer College right now. It's called um, Degrees of Visibility, and it's about pictures with a description of prisons and immigrant detention centers and where they're at in the U.S. and why they are kept outside of people's way so that they don't see it, so that they don't think about it, know about them, get involved in them. In this case, we were very successful about getting people involved in visiting these immigrants. And so there's been a great hype these past two, three years about visitation into Adelanto and then inviting those that visit into the advocacy part of advocating for the immigrant inside and also the political aspect of it shouldn't be happening, not here, not in Southern California, not in California, not in all of the U.S. Mm -hmm. This simply is a, um, it, should, it just shouldn't be happening. There are alternatives to having people detained, incarcerated, caged, you know, because ultimately that's what it is. We're caging people so that corporations are profiting from them. And it's just plainly immoral. It's wrong, it's immoral. So we have gotten these people involved. We passed legislation. This year, we were able to work on um, AB 32. AB 32, what, um, what does is do not, does not allow their contracts to be renewed after they're done. In the case of the immigrant detention in Adelanto, their contract ends in December 31st. And beginning the year with AB 32, they would not be allowed to continue renewing their contract. However, we have found out that um, <clears throat> whether it's GEO or whether it's Homeland Security, um, they're trying to um, enter into a new 15-year contract before the end of the year to dismiss this new bill that will be law at the beginning of the year. And so we always are, are, are fighting against all of these oppressive systems that are profiting from, from um, making, creating harm for people. And yes, we've seen a lot of changes through um, creating new laws to protect people. But then there are also those who are working on incriminating, creating laws that will incriminate more and more people. And so that's the part that I feel we need to be alerted to and we need to be on top of and to be able to create a just world where 
I'm truly going to feel safe. And we're truly going to be welcoming. And where we're truly going to be seeing the humanness of all others and understand that when they come, they come with great gifts, you know, to make a better community for all of us. But we, we are so caught up in all these negative narratives against immigrants at this time that are created on purpose because of our political climate. And it's, it's you know, sometimes I feel, um, in, in if, you've, if you know the, the story of David and Goliath, like we're constantly, all these people, these community organizers or people that are working on social justice, we're fighting against this giant mm -hmm. that continues to grow hands and heads and just becoming uglier and uglier. So that's how it feels. It truly does. But we must continue. We must continue. Yeah, it does feel like it's, um, uh, it morphs. You know, there, it's constantly changing. It's constantly shifting. One of the local attorneys that we work with, um, she was saying that, you know, there's this constant, you know, it, the work is just constant because there, we passed the law like AB 32 um, to disallow privatized prisons and to ban them from California. <clears throat> and yet there are other thing, other laws then that are put in place or agreements that are made that then just create another aspect to this out of control system. One of the things that she was saying is a recent, a recent agreement between the US and Guatemala, I believe, was to allow for 25,000 agricultural visas um, for Guatemalans if um, they would, if Mexico would stop the Guatemalans from coming into Mexico, then preventing them from coming further um, to our borders here in the United States. And so basically what that has done, when you really look at the larger picture of that, then it's created 25,000 agricultural visas, which then exploit labor um, of these individuals coming here, separating them too from their families, and then creating almost a almost a slave labor in that it's they're being underpaid, undervalued, you know, that it's undervalued, it's underpaid. And, you know, we're eating lettuce and tomatoes yeah. and, you know, benefiting from this and it perpetuates the problem. It just continues to make the problem worse and um, more challenging. So yeah. how do you then navigate that? And, and you made me think of, of two things. The fact that in America, in the Americas, for millennia, you know, people have been migrating mm -hmm. from the south to the north, from the north to the south. And it is us, we create these laws that separate people. We have this ugly border wall already but yet we want to create a bigger wall, more expensive, that will create, you know, um, money and pretty much corporations that are friends with you know whom are going to benefit from that. Because he did ask for money, seven point, I think it was $7.5 billion that he asked for to respond to a crisis that was not our crisis. Not crisis. It was created for the purpose of obtaining the money that he wants for his wall. 
the way we're talking about the issue here has different different perspectives of analysis. One of the ones that we've been able to talk about is that there's a private corporation that is benefiting from caging individuals, uh, making $120 per day per person. So it is in their benefit to make sure that these facilities are full. And more uh, related is this conversation about this sense of us as community members being disconnected from what's going on in the desert or this faraway sense of place, but yet we are actively benefiting from their existence. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to even think about this model that says, well, how am I benefiting from an individual miles away from here uh, being caged all day and having the money from the federal government go fulfill a private corporation's yearly revenue? And, 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 and I struggle with that. But I want to end with this statement that, that I've heard many people talk about. It's like we're trying to secure our communities. And I heard Hilda say this mm-hmm. line that said, like, we want that too. So maybe there's an agreement among opposing political views that you both want the same thing, which is a safe community. And there's a very awkward line of how we believe we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. So some of us believe that if we build a ridiculous tall wall in a certain part of the terrain it will secure me on this side others may believe if i if i cage everyone that i feel is a threat i will be safe and then at the same time a a lot of us are going that actually makes me feel less safe and i'll argue it in this way seeing a, a wall that i didn't condone to i feel am i being caged in on that side of this wall seeing people detained in my benefit lets me know or make me feel unsafe by saying, am I next? Right. Am I going to do something where we've all agreed it's okay to put people, as you mentioned, Hilda, that like depending on where you are, the law shouldn't be putting me in, in a cage, but depending on the model of criminality that this year comes about, mm-hmm. I may be mm-hmm. taken. So the, the awkward line is that we're here we are, you know, thinking about safety and there's different perspectives on that. And surprisingly, I think that's where my frustration comes about. That like, mm-hmm. I do, I'm an optimist. I do believe that people are are good uh, in the sense that they want to be healthy. They want to be beautiful with one another. They want to be human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've been human for thousands and hundreds and thousands of years. The model of the nation state is fairly new. It's a couple hundred years old. And yet... We've internalized and normal and create a normalcy of these arbitrary divides, but I'm still struggling with this line that says like here, we're sharing a pretty safe conversation. But how do you extend this conversation when it's not as open, especially in the work that you do? Like how do you encounter people on a daily basis and and share this type of dialogue with them? It's not an easy conversation, that's for sure. I'm gonna say that even among Latinos, I am Latina. If you've ever met me, I am not white. I'm not a white Latina. I'm a brown Latina. And so years ago when we used to have the checkpoints, you know, by the police department, supposedly they were checking in for DUIs, but we knew that they were checking for driver's licenses, and then they would end up towing cars. I was pulled over a couple of times. And so I knew then what it meant to be targeted, you know, because of the way I look. And so 
there's a lot of people living in fear. And as long as you have people living in fear, whether you have a great big huge wall or you have a thousand um, jails around you, there is no true um, safety. Because I don't feel safer. I think safe safety is what I create and we people create. And it comes when we begin to acknowledge and accept, see each other. Let's just see each other. Let's just see you in an optimistic way like you shared, Daniel. You know, um, knowing that you have your own gifts that you bring to our community and so so do I. And so start from there, knowing and acknowledging each other and also not trying to exploit each other because that's what's, hap- that's what's happening. You reminded me of the exploitation that goes on inside the Adelanto Immigrant mm-hmm. Detention Center because every person that's there has a choice to work and they get paid. So they work their eight hours, 10 hours. They do the cleaning, they do the cooking, they do the washing. They get paid $1 a day, one US dollar a day to keep busy so that they don't go crazy inside and also to buy themselves an alternative meal because everybody complains inside inside when when you begin engaging people into a conversation they always complain about two things well three things is the way they're treated the inhumane way they're treated mm-hmm. by the guards the um uh lack of um medical help you know um there's no urgent care in these facilities they pretty much if you have a pain, you have to submit paperwork to be able to see whoever's on duty, and all they will give you is either Tylenol or aspirin. And so after that, <clears throat> if you're really ill, they pretty much, once you're dying, is when they decide to transport you to a local hospital. And so those are the two things that we hear, and the third one is the food is horrible. Beans and so and they rice. use beans and rice with some sort of canned meat. And yes, when people have experienced hunger in these third world countries, they are grateful. But after being there six months, the same thing becomes horrible. And so what they do with this dollar a day is they purchase themselves the package of the um, um, cup soups, cup of top, noodles. Top ramen. Top ramen. That's what they do with their dollar a day. They also have to save and save their $1 for three or four days before they can make a call because the calls are also a, owned by a for-profit company. Um, and so they're very expensive. And so here in these detention facilities, you will have people, especially those asylum seekers who have absolutely no family living in the U.S. And they haven't seen people. I, I, I've heard the stories and they're very grateful when they say, you're the first one I see. Mm-hmm from the outside these last six, eight months. And so those are the stories that we hear. So I think when I, part of the work and the goal for me was humanize the people inside detention, this detention facility, and engage others to come and hear the stories, come and be with them, sit with them, accompany them, create a relationship with them. And hopefully you will advocate for them. Because once they're there, they really do need the larger community to show up and support for them when they go to their court hearings. If you're an asylum seeker, you also need, uh, you might need a sponsor, somebody who 
um, will be able to vouch for you and say they can use my address. They're going to get their mail here, and I'm going to make sure that they show up to their court hearings. And so that's called a sponsor. And um, we've had, we've been very successful this year. We've had um, a few of these sponsors come. We've also seen that when they don't have a credible story and, and they're looking to, they're searching, asking for asylum, if they don't have a credible story, then their, on, their only way of leaving Adelanto is through a bond, through pain of a bond, so that they are able to be in the community seeking for help, their legal help that they're going to need to prove their case and also accessing all the documentation from their country of origin to prove to the court that they have a rightful story and a rightful way of entering this country seeking asylum. And we've seen the bonds go up in price. Excuse me. Yeah. the We've seen the bonds go up in price. When I first became involved with this work, the average bond was around 4000 to $7,000. And the... Uh, the one incident that we went to, uh, that gentleman received a, that was the highest, that was the new set, was $30,000. And the difference between a bond and bail is that bond, all $30,000 has to be put up, right? Whereas bail is like 10%, but bonds, it's the full amount that has to be put up. So in order for um, this young man to be able to leave Arelanto, um Somebody from the outside has to put up three hundred or put up the thirty thousand dollars. Then um, they wear ankle monitors, and then the cost of the ankle monitor and the monitoring and everything is then um, billed to the detainee, so that they then experience that bill as well. Or they then you know there's more money involved as the process So there's a, there's a lot of money make, making out of this. I saw the um, a family who had lived in the U.S. for 15 years. The dad um, got, a, got in a car accident maybe 10 years ago. He showed up to court, and he was told that it wasn't his day. He didn't see his name on the, uh, on the roster. So he went back home. He didn't know any better. So because he didn't show up to court, there was a warrant for his arrest placed. And again, he he's a, a jardinero. He works doing yards. So he never paid much attention. He's um, trying to survive his daily living in this way. Um, he gets um, decides to drink a couple of beers. Then his children get in a rowdy fight in the front yard. Somebody calls the cop. The cop shows up. Dad had a few beers, answers the door, and the cop decides to look up his name. He notices a warrant for the arrest, and all of a sudden, he's being arrested. As I hear the conversation today, I'm reminiscing on some of the ways that I've had these talks before. And there's something that, for me, at least helps me um, situate the conversation in my own sense of um, not just analysis, but participation. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with how we create narratives of these others. And... We do it by the racialized construct, you know, whether it's a black or brown body, and it becomes this narrative, the story that um, is fiction. Then we say things like, these people come from this part of the world. And somehow in my mind, I have an escape valve. They're different. 
then we might say they did something that is outside the domain of, of legal parameters. So again, I have an escape valve because they did something, so now I'm reclassifying them as a different type of human being. But one of the things that I noticed from your group, at least in some of the conversations I've heard in the past, is that you really have a human-centered conversation. Mm -hmm. So that, well, I've participated even in conversations where we are talking in um, pro-immigrant, pro-refugee, but I'm being very clear. It's the refugee status or the immigrant status. But then when I speak pro-human, a lot of things change. Uh, for example, the immigrant status for me is one that is contextually only relevant within nation states. Hilda, you mentioned the idea that we know through archaeological records that humans have migrated from this territory down to the tip of South America, and from South America all the way to the tip of, of North America. That's not immigration. Those are migration patterns. Mm -hmm. And that was a very human characteristic. But here we see ourselves in 2019 looking at a migration pattern and saying, we don't want to talk about the human status. I want to recast this person and dehumanize them by relabeling them. And I think that's the part that for me gets really frustrating because I struggle with bringing the conversation back to the human condition. The fact that we've normalized a pattern where humans can be caged. Mm -hmm. We've normalized it and we say things like, well, they did something bad, they shouldn't be here. But it's still quite awkward that we are comfortable as a society caging adults, caging children, having them suffer. And the part that I feel more uh, encouraged is by taking ownership of the effect to all of us. I think there was the line, well, they're getting hurt, I'm okay. Now I'm entering the phase that says, they're getting hurt, I'm getting hurt. Mm -hmm. I may not mm -hmm. see it yet, but their pain is rippling out. There's just no way I can escape it. And maybe that's where, again, how do you translate the dialogue of the conversation? How is it that we move the conversation forward? From our faith perspective at Centers for Spiritual Living, that there is only one life, that we are all interrelated, that um, we are all brothers and sisters and siblings on this planet. And so we are constantly talking about it from this perspective and this is the way we see the world this is the way we view the world we envision a world that works for everyone in all of creation and that we are all interrelated and interconnected so anything that i do um to an other and that's in quotations because there is no real other um, but anything i do to an other i'm also doing to myself and so <clears throat> this is where really the call for a rise in consciousness comes in to really look and see one another as relatives, as inseparable from one another, and to recognize these facts that, yes, these people have different stories. This person sitting in front of me has a different story than I do. They have different life experiences than I do. But that actually adds to the rich tapestry of life, to the rich tapestry of expression. And so to honor their experiences and to honor their life and to recognize that we're inseparable from one another, therefore approaching uh, social engagement or social justice, it's not just um, doing charity work, if you will, for somebody else, that really it's valuable for me too, it's important for me too, because while until all of us are free, none of us are free. We are all, you know, so bound and intertwined in this thing called life. 
and our expression of it that we have to really think about it from this perspective like you're sharing of there is that interconnectedness there has to be and so what we talk about then at centers for spiritual living is in trying to instill this idea and to share this idea with one another and um, doing our work in the world moving out into the world and doing our work this way from this perspective when um, I first met Hilda it was for the families belong together we had a prayer vigil and Hilda came and she spoke at the prayer vigil but it the idea the call is to raise our consciousness to lift in consciousness to recognize our oneness and then to move from that place so rather than being against something what are we for right approaching these ideas in order to find solutions because a problem cannot be solved at the same level of consciousness that created it to paraphrase einstein right but so we're called to approach it from a different perspective what are we for what are we standing for we stand for human integrity it's the interfaith movement for human integrity we stand for human integrity we stand for love we stand for equity not just equality but equity right so we stand for these things and then we act from that place of standing for rather than standing in opposition to something standing against something because then all we're doing is we're perpetuating that division we're perpetuating that um disconnection from one another and truly we can never be separate because there is only one i also think of our mantra right um within the organization on for human integrity we our mantra is we must mend the past heal the present to transform the future and so if we don't recognize that what we're doing right now is repeating a part of history that already passed we're just repeating it we did the same thing with the Japanese internment camps, mm -hmm. with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. We did it with a Bracero movement. So we have a history of exploitation in this country. And we continue to create laws that will perpetuate the exploitation of people and the money-making. Because, you know, when you think even about slavery, certain people became wealthy out of that. They were exploiting the African-American community for wealth. Well, that's still happening. It doesn't look the same, ex for the exception that it's the black and brown people who are being incarcerated, jailed, caged, so that others profit from it. And so we don't understand that, and we can, and we can engage people into advocating against it, then it's just going to continue happening and happening. And I don't know about everybody else, but I'm a grandmother. I want to leave this place a better place for my grandchildren. And not only mine, but for all of us. You know, just that creation, that transformation of a truly safe place where everybody is welcome and recognized for their gifts, not exploited for their gifts. As we wrap up this conversation, I'd like to uh, just extend uh, any final thoughts there, there will be more talks about the implementation of AB 32. What does that look like now that it's been passed? And we are planning and we're working on making sure that every person inside the Adelanto detention facility is released. 
So that is conversations that many organizations, including Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity and the faith community are talking about. So we are seeing that. So there will be more opportunities for me to share what that looks like and invite people to participate. But the one thing I think of right now is on December the 5th at Pitzer College, everyone's invited to come and look at that art exhibit called Degrees of Visibility. It's about not only, it's about jails, federal prisons, and including immigrant detention centers, but there's going to be a dialogue on that uh, on, the, on campus at 6 p.m. And so I would like to extend the invitation if you would like to learn more about that. Specifically, I think we're going to be talking about um, just the jailing of our black and brown community and inviting people to learn more about that so that they are well-informed they can help us heal the present and transform the future. I would say do your homework, get involved. Um, there's plenty of opportunities to uh, get involved with uh, either inland, uh, either interfaith movement for human integrity. <clears throat> there's also the Inland Coalition for Immigrant Justice. There's other uh, groups in the inland valleys that are working on these issues. And all of these groups are working together um, to try and fill in gaps and to overlap. So there's plenty of opportunities. I invite you to go to their websites and go to their uh, social media channels. Um, there's plenty of opportunity to get involved and just to educate, you know, educate, 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 educate yourself. It's our responsibility to educate ourselves. We can't have somebody else do it for us. On that note, I wanna thank both of you for sharing this conversation with us today. Thank you, Thank Daniel, you. for having us. You've just finished hearing a conversation with Hilda Cruz and Reverend Jeffrey Ryan. We spoke about the detention centers in general, as well as the local facility here in Adelanto, California. On October 2019, California passed AB 32, which puts a termination at the extension of the present for-profit detention facilities, as well as the initiation of any new contracts that would create a for-profit prison facility. AB 32 is slated to take effect January 1st, 2020. Our communities are well-versed in the effects of the detention centers, the ways that locking people in cages results in pain for not just those that are detained, but for the many that are outside. One of the recurring themes that I heard in today's conversation was the issue of safety. I hear many people support the detention centers by advocating a belief that putting people in cages and treating them in very oppressive, hostile, and inhumane manner will keep us safe. I also heard a conversation that in that very act of putting people in detention centers, those of us that are outside feel less safe. And I think it has to do with the ways we think of our communities. Some of us may feel our communities are able to be separated by walls, and others may think of our communities as a broader network of interdependence, where that interdependence activates a connection to locations that many of us haven't even seen. Just recently, I came across a report by the Associated Press indicating that up to 2019, there's been a total of 69,550 children 
that have been detained. That number does not reflect the total number presently detained, but is a reflection of the children that have been detained. And when we reflect on that aspect, there's an awkward realization. How do we make sense of ourselves as community members within the United States? With a statistic that states the United States has the largest number of children in detention centers in the planet. And the topic of detention centers, the prison industrial complex, justice reform, is complex. Yet there are many alternatives, and those alternatives will be brought forward through dialogue and critical reflection. I hope you found this conversation of interest and relevant, and take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, comments, or any questions you may have to the following email. Comments at dreport.org or check out our archive page at dreport.org to review past segments. I want to thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Daniel here on D-Report on KUCR 88.3 FM, the radio station of UC Riverside. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.